Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in South Asia, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Navarapu, the host of this channel, and today I'm in conversation with Dr. Lisa Mitchell, author of the brand new book, Hailing the State, Indian Democracy Between Elections, which was published by Duke University Press in 2023. Dr. Mitchell is Chair and Professor of Anthropology and History in the Department of South Asia Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for taking time out and joining me on this New Books Network episode. I really enjoyed reading Hailing the State, and I have so many questions to ask you. Uh, But really, thanks uh, for taking time out and uh, being with me here. Well, thank you so much, Sneha. It's really a pleasure. Yeah, but before we begin, I would uh, love to get to know you a little more. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you become an anthropologist? Well, it was sort of a long and kind of accidental uh, discovery of anthropology. Um, I had never taken any anthropology classes in in college, uh, so I was never exposed to the discipline. Um, I think it probably helps to to understand me if you know that I grew up in the Midwest of the United States in very, very small towns. Uh when I was born, my family was living in a town of about a thousand people. And when I was six, we moved to a village of about 2000 people. And then when I was 17, we moved to a town of about 5000 people. And when I went off to college, I had this sense that the world was much bigger than those small towns. Uh, partly that was because uh, my father, my parents twice had moved us uh, abroad in conjunction with my dad's work. Uh, when I was four and five, we lived for a year in Melbourne, Australia. And then when I was 11, we had lived in a, a working class suburb of Glasgow in, in Scotland. And so I did get a little bit of exposure and our house was also often, you know, we often had guests who were from abroad. And, and so my parents were, you know, certainly linked in with a more international uh, set of conversations. But at the same time, when I went to college, I thought, okay, here's my chance to really be exposed to the wider world. And I ended up majoring in political science or what was at my college called government. I'd always been interested in power and I thought that that would help me, you know, develop some tools for thinking about power. And it was, I was a little late in discovering that in fact, political science was more interested in institutional forms of power and not so much the interpersonal things that I was really interested in. Uh, And I took a a class my second year in college uh, called North-South Relations, and it was an international relations course. Uh, And I assumed that in a class like that, you would read some Northern authors, people from Europe and, and North America, and some Southern authors from Latin America, from Africa, from South Asia, from Southeast Asia. And I was really shocked when we read entirely American authors, except for one British author. And to me, that <laughs> didn't really seem to be representing the kind of conversation that I would expect in a course entitled North-South Relations. And at that point, I decided that maybe I needed to take my education into my own hands. And that's when I uh, ended up studying abroad for a year through the University of Wisconsin. And I chose to study in, in South India, uh, in Madurai. Uh, and there, um, uh, I, I chose India probably at the time for very maybe Orientalist reasons. I knew they, I knew India had a long intellectual tradition, scholarly tradition, but I also knew that a lot of the academic scholarship in India today was written in English. Um, but I did study Tamil uh, before I went. I studied for a summer at the University of Wisconsin, and then I did a Tamil certificate course in uh, at Madurai Kamaraj University in Madurai. Um, but then I came back to the U.S. I finished my BA. I did a master's degree in sociolinguistics, uh, which I think really reflects my my longstanding interest in language and, and language politics. Um, uh, and then it, it was it was 
actually uh, in the middle of the master's degree when I had gone to India to do some research for my master's thesis. And the, there was another study abroad program in Madurai called the South India Term Abroad or Sita program. And the director of that program had lost the, the, the person who was supposed to be the assistant director had had a family health issue and couldn't, couldn't uh, fulfill the job. And, and they had heard that I was in, somebody had heard that I was in India already and asked if I would take that over for a semester. And the director of that program was an anthropologist. And that was really my first exposure to what anthropologists do. And I came back, finished my MA, and then I then I started in a PhD program in anthropology. So that's that's the kind of circuitous route that brought me to anthropology. Yeah, and I guess in a way, the engagement with political science is so clear through your work, right? And it, it brings up uh, a lot of the issues and concerns that political science doesn't quite address in in provocative and insightful ways, as does political anthropology, for instance. Um, and on that note, I would love to know, how did this particular book begin and evolve? When did you start thinking about hailing the state? That's such a great question. I think I've been thinking about it for a very long time. Uh, you might be able to figure out that this book took me almost 14 years to write. Uh, and I think part of that is that uh, when I was finishing my last book, um, actually my, my very first book, which was my dissertation, uh, there were a lot of unresolved uh, think there was a lot of unresolved thinking in in as I completed that book and um, the the very last chapter of that book and that, that that's a book on the making of a mother tongue that uses the Telugu linguistic state movement as its kind of focus uh, and and in that last chapter I write about the Telugu linguistic state activist Potishri Ramalu who fasted for 58 days and then died uh, and uh, he was fasting to demand the immediate formation of the Telugu Andhra state with not just the creation of the state, but also with Madras as, a, as its capital. Uh, and in the wake of his death, there were massive gatherings throughout coastal Andhra. And in uh, four different towns, there were police firings on these gatherings and people were killed and injured in these police firings. And one of the things, and, it, and then within four days of all of this kind of uprising, Nehru declared the creation of the new Andhra state. In, this was in uh, December of 1952. Uh, and the state was brought into being in 1953 and then later forms the foundation for the reorganization of linguistic states in 1956. But one of the things that really struck me is that uh, all of the police firings happened either in or immediately adjacent to railway stations. And so I started to think about why, why did this happen in railway stations? Like, what's the significance of railway spaces in relationship to the history of politics? And I began to realize that, you know, Gandhi went from station to station, speaking to crowds. Uh, people would come and gather at the railway station whenever something happened. And I, I started to ask people, you, you know, how'd you hear about Potishri Ramalu's death? He 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 was fasting in Madras, and I did uh, that. The research for that last chapter of my book was in Nalur, about three hours north of, of Chennai. And and so I started asking people, "How'd you hear about Poti Shriyamo's death?" And they would all say things like, "You know, I said, did you hear it on the radio? Did you read it in the newspaper?" And almost to a person, they'd say things like, "Yeah, radio was there, newspaper was there, but no, we heard it in the street." And then we went to the railway station to find out what really happened. And there was this idea that, you know, the, the radio was government controlled. Newspapers tended to be associated with political parties. But talking to somebody who just got down, who had just gotten down from a train that arrived from someplace where something happened, people really trusted what they said. And so that, you know, that kind of motivated uh, this this project, which was originally conceptualized as a history of the political uses of railway spaces. But as I started doing the research, it began to grow. And I think maybe I can just share two quick stories of other kinds of ethnographic encounters that really pushed me to expand this beyond railway stations. As, as the book is structured now, the second half is really on railway spaces. And the first half is on a little broader on kind of street road intersection and other kinds of public spaces. Uh, but if we have time, I'll just tell you two other quick ethnographic uh, 
experiences. In April of 1997, uh, and I was doing doing research then for what became my PhD dissertation and then later my first book, I had traveled up to the town of Warangal. It's a, I don't know, it's a hundred some kilometers north of Hyderabad uh, in what was then Andhra Pradesh and is now the new state of Telangana. Uh, so I'd gone, uh, I'd gone up to Warangal to meet the poet and advocate for the creation of a separate uh, state of Telangana, uh, Kaloji Narayana Rao. And Kaloji was just a great, he was a great orator, he's a great poet. And he told me the story about a popular Telugu children's radio program called Balanandam. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it, it used to air several times a week. And he told me that in every session, at least 20 to 30 children are featured on the radio program. And um, and so over the years, over the last 40 years, there were probably 20 to 30 lakhs of children, two to three million children had participated in that radio program. But then he said that the person who sits at the desk, the person in charge who decides which children get to be on the show, that person was always from the coastal districts of Andhra and always spoke in the coastal Andhra dialect that had come to be defined as standard Telugu. And he said to me, I challenge you, over the last 40 years of those two or three million children, not a single child, girl or boy, from those 22 districts, except for two to three dominant caste communities in the most prosperous coastal Andhra districts has ever been heard on that program. So they were all from Krishna Godavari, Guntur, and from dominant landed caste communities. And he used this story to really emphasize to me how the voices of the majority of the residents of the state were effectively silenced. They literally could not be heard on the radio. And even in cinema, they, the, the Telangana dialect used to be used either for clown characters or for villains. Um, that's definitely changed since 2014 and the creation of the new state of Telangana. But historically, uh, I think you're probably familiar with with uh, something called the te- the spoken language movement in Telugu, uh, which emerged in the early decades of the 20th century. And one of the interesting things about that movement is it it's always been historicized as a very liberal gesture to make writing and literacy more accessible to a wider population by making the written language more similar to the spoken Telugu language. Previously, the written language was a kind of classical uh, version of the language. But the problem that Kaloji pointed out to me is that the leaders of this movement chose the dialect of these educated dominant caste groups in those most prosperous districts of coastal Andhra. And Kaloji says that this was one of the biggest atrocities and exploitations of the people of the Telangana region. And he said, because of this, no person from Telangana was ever able to succeed in any field, especially if it involved language, because they just literally could not be heard. Uh, And so that really stuck with me. That was 1997. Kaloji is no more. He's passed away. Um, But that, that, that conversation really stuck with me. And then I had a number of, of other encounters, ethnographic encounters, and I'll just end uh, with with a, a third example. Um, I was in January of 2009, I was in Chennai uh, to do some research in the Tamil Nadu State Archives. And early one morning, I was in a car on my way to the archives, and I, we got the car got stuck in an intersection in Basant Nagar in Chennai. And, the, and I got out to see what, why we weren't moving. And there were 20 or 30, 25 or 30, mostly women sitting on the ground in the very middle of a very busy intersection with several schools. People were trying to drop their kids. They were on their way to work. And it turns out that these women had been victims of Cyclone Nisha, which had happened the previous November. And the chief minister had promised all of the families whose homes had been destroyed in their neighborhood that they'd be granted compensation. But then they tried to access and collect the promised funds, and they just were sent pillar to post. I mean, they were just, they went to office to office, and all their efforts led to nothing. And so finally, they decided that maybe this way the government would listen to them and would actually resolve the situation. Um, And I think there were two things, two points that I want to make about this, this kind of 
impromptu sit-in in the middle of this inter- intersection. And the first is this was not the first effort that they had made to communicate with, with government officials. Um, and the second was this was not an act of resistance against the state. This was not, they were not saying you, you know, you elected representatives, you, you chief minister, you're not legitimate. Instead, they were saying, hey, you elected representatives, hey, you chief minister, listen to us, follow through on what you promised. And, and I think that, that realization that, that, you know, we tend to theorize collective assembly in public space as resistance to the state or as rejection of the state. And that's not what these women were doing. Uh, and the more then than I started to pay attention, the more I realized that often that's the case. Not always, but often that's the case. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I want to come back to this uh, question of uh, the conceptualization of politics as hailing the state. And we'll get back to this uh, very interesting conversation that you've begun. Uh, but before we get there, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the research design and methods that the book draws on so that our listeners can get a sense of the materials that you were working with? Absolutely. Uh, I would say that that my method always starts with ethnographic encounters. Uh, in each of my chapters, it's it's encounters with people in the present that have raised questions for me. But uh, the way that I've been able to answer those questions have, has often needed to draw on historical archival materials to really you know flesh out answers to my research questions, um, and so. Uh, in many ways, my goal has been to historicize Indian democracy by giving equal weight to existing practices into which electoral forms of practice were introduced and ultimately embedded. Uh, so rather than treating India like a vacuum into which, quote, European electoral practices were suddenly introduced in the 20th century, I'm actually interested in the existing social and political forms of representation that already existed in the subcontinent. And then I make two moves. I want to see how those existing practices have shaped the practice, the the kinds of electoral practices or, or kind of altered electoral practices, but also how electoral practices have reshaped the existing forms of representation that already existed. Uh, and so, so what I've ended up doing is, in addition to interacting with all sorts of people who are engaging politically, so members of political parties, members of women's movements, members of the you know people who participate in the Telangana movement, people who have participated in in various kinds of Dalit movements. Um, uh, in addition to all of these kinds of ethnographic observations, I also spent a lot of time in archives. So mm-hmm. I worked in the, the Andhra Pradesh State Archives that later became the Telangana State Archives. Mm-hmm. I've worked in the Tamil Nadu State Archives. I've worked in the, uh, the uh, um, Uttar Pradesh uh, Archives um, in North India. I've also worked in the National Archives in Delhi and in the British Library in in. London, uh, but also in uh, the Railway Museum archives, uh, mm-hmm. Teen Morty, the Nehru Museum and Memorial Library. And then it, I've worked with a lot of activists' own personal private libraries. In fact, some of the most interesting materials I've gotten have come out of people's private collections, things that they saved uh, and that have never made their way into, into formal libraries and archives. Yeah, thank you. And I think the the breadth of this kind of archival research and ethnographic research really comes through in the book. I feel like uh, I keep coming back to this uh, adjective rich. I just feel like the book is so rich with, like, you know, so much fascinating archival, historical and ethnographic uh, material. Um, Yeah, and in the book, through these really analytically and empirically hefty um, materials, you make the argument that Theorizing democracy necessitates an engagement with the political beyond electoral processes. Instead, you emphasize how collective assemblies are fundamental to the functioning of democracy, and you trace the colonial and post-colonial genealogies of collective forms of assembly in India. The book is thus organized around seven sets of practices that you identify as being key modalities of political engagement between elections. So those are sit-ins and hunger strikes, petitioning to state authority, open-air mass public meetings, strikes or hartals, 
road and rail blockades, and rallies or processions to sites of power. But before we begin to get into the specifics of some of these practices, I wanted to circle back to the conversation we were having and ask you to tell us a little bit uh, about what the title of the book, Hailing the State, implies and what conceptualizing politics as healing uh, does to prevailing theories of power. Um, in other words, what kinds of conceptual and analytical concerns is the book responding to? Thanks so much for that question, Sneha. Um, hailing hailing is, is kind of an interesting term. Um, mm -hmm. and, and it's one that could, could be open to misinterpretation. And when I use the term hailing, I'm not talking about bowing down before the state. Not mm -hmm. at all. In fact, I'm actually drawing from the, from, um, from the Althusserian use of hailing or interpolation. Uh, and... Uh, in his very famous discussion of state ideology, Althusser talks about the ways that representatives of, of the state hail citizens on the street and call them into a particular ideology so that people become subjects of the state through state actors hailing them. And his most famous example is of a policeman on the street saying, hey, you, and people on the street turning in response to that hail. And in the process, he argues, they become interpolated uh, as subjects of the state. And one of the questions that I have is, why is it that only representatives of the state are portrayed by Althusser as engaging in acts of hailing? And why are those on the street always the objects of that hailing? So, in a sense, I was curious why hailing has always been represented as unidirectional. Um, it, it's, and I think we see this even in, you know, Foucault, who was a student of Althusser's, and, uh, you know, we tend to look at the state as uh, its relationship to subjects or to populations as it, we analyze it unidirectionally, even, even if there might be back and forth that tension is usually on the state's, uh, the state's growth, the state's penetration into increasingly uh, narrow, you know, spaces, um, uh, and and that kind of incorporation of subjects into uh, state ideology. But I, I want what I really want to ask with this book is how do we? Well, first of all, how do states and their representatives come to be recognized by people? And how do we theorize what happens when states or their representatives refuse to recognize those on the street as subjects, as happens all too often, when they re effectively refuse to interpolate them, even though the people on the street may actually deeply desire to mm -hmm. be interpolated as subjects of the state. Um, so essentially, I think that what I'm offering is both a counter, but also a complement to Foucauldian approaches that focus on, you know, the expanding panoptic aspirations of states by really inverting Althusser's approach and asking what happens when we recognize those on the street as equally capable of being active agents of the act of hailing and by extension also being able to engage in the act of surveillance that you know, people on the street can watch what elected officials are doing. They can watch how officials of the state are implementing existing legal structures. And I'm really hoping that this book might challenge and, and change the way we theorize the state and the history of the emergence of the state and even its changes over time. Uh, so I'm hoping that it might offer us ways of thinking about the state in more relational terms. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. And um, my colleague, Zachary Levinson, and I had also uh, attempted to do something along these lines for a special issue in qualitative sociology, actually, along the lines of this relational sociology of the state. And we were also identifying other efforts in rethinking these sorts of theories of states. I think that's such an interesting ongoing conversation that is thankfully interdisciplinary that is happening along, you know, rethinking the the, the co-production of the state and the citizen and um, how to think about these processes as dialogic 
uh, or dialectical rather than unidirectional. So yeah, I was really um, so excited to be reading the framework of your book as it was um, really helpful for me to think about how to position my own work on uh, state-citizen relations in urban India. So uh, thank you for articulating that framework so succinctly just now. Um, in the first chapter, you make an, a very interesting argument about how thinking about um, how we may want to rethink how we measure the desired outcomes of sit-ins and demonstrations and hunger strikes. And you say that instead of thinking about these practices as necessarily being acts of opposition, protest, or resistance, we may want to pay attention to how these actions are efforts in building public opinion, how they often prompt those in more powerful positions to give audience to the marginalized, and most interesting, how they're intimately tied to spatial politics, especially the availability and access to public space. Um, could you speak a little bit about the changing meanings and practices of these dharnas and uh, uh, hunger strikes and why thinking about space matters to the study of democracy? Thanks so much, Sneha. And I'm, I'm also really excited to hear about the other conversations that you've been having uh, about the state. And, and, you know, I think this is a really important area to, to open up. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about Dharna, which the first chapter takes up. Um, I I was really struck uh, when one of my interlocutors in in Telangana, a woman who'd been very involved in in lots of different kinds of politics, uh, including feminist politics, but she once said to me that Dharna means sitting in one place until someone from the government has to come and take your res- representation. And I was really struck by that, 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 you know, sitting in one place until someone from the government has to come to you and take your representation. And I do think that taking a relational approach to the state allows us a new lens to uh, really see the way that people don't always reject the sovereignty of the state or seek to resist it, but actually seek to be incorporated into it, heard by it, participate in it. Um, I've sometimes felt that anthropological theory has been deeply shaped by very anarchist theories of the state. Uh, I mean, I love reading James Scott's work, um, but, you know, books like The Art of Not Being Governed or even David Graeber's work, again, I love his work, but there is a kind of assumption that the state that that states are something that we want to avoid or that we want to escape from. And so I, I, I've really been really struck by talking to people in India at how invested people really are in building relationships with state representatives or building networks that can connect them to the state, in being recognized by the state, um, in getting electronic Aadhaar card or you know things that that make them recognizable to the state. Um, and and I think one of the one of the ways one of the only ways that anthropology has allowed. Or, a dominant way, maybe not the only way, but a dominant way that we've been encouraged to think about that is that people have sort of been duped into these relationships with the state. And I, I think there are other ways that we can recognize people's desire to be recognizable by the state and, and other ways that we can theorize this. So in this first chapter, I take this, this very old practice of dharna, uh, a concept that originally meant something like door sitting, where an individual, and we have documented examples of this back, you know, as early as the 1700s, um, maybe even earlier, when often a lower status person, like a widow or someone who's owed money by a higher status person, will sit on the doorstep of the higher status person or in a public place like a temple or a town square. And they'll either fast or they will refuse to move until the higher status person agrees to open up negotiation with them. And these early examples are almost all individuals uh, and they're almost all interpersonal. So it's it's not uh, sitting in front of a government official's house. It's sitting in front of somebody who owes them money or in law, like in the case of a widow, there's a very famous example of a widow who was asking for maintenance in the wake of the death of, of her husband and her in-laws were refusing to give her any maintenance. And so she used public opinion to really compel them to open up dialogue and provide ultimately provide maintenance. Um, and so, so historically, Dharna has been something that individuals engaged in. 
More recently, we've seen dharana expand in two ways or, or shift in two ways. One is that it's become something much more collective. Uh, dharanas today are almost always a large group of people. Uh, and second, they tend to be oriented toward representatives of the state. So you might do a dharana in front of the state secretariat or in front of the legislative assembly or in front of an elected official's house or office. Um, and uh, so much so that in cities like Hyderabad uh, and Delhi, we now have designated protest spaces. And in Hyderabad, the designated uh, assembly, collective assembly space is known as Dharna Chauk. So the, the space for a collective assembly. And this was created in the mid-1990s um, by then Chief Minister Chandrababu Naidu. Uh, and at the time that it was created, people were, were quite affronted. And um, because the designated space that was created in Hyderabad was on a back street a couple of kilometers from the state secretariat, it was a state street that nobody went down. It, it, it couldn't be seen by anyone. Uh, and, and people previously had tended to use spaces that were um, very proximate to government offices. Uh, in Hyderabad, uh, Lumini Park, which is directly across from the entrance to the state secretariat, had been one of the most popular places. Um, um, but but uh, at, in the in the mid nineteen nineties, uh, Chandra Baba Naidu was in the process of of um, authorizing the building of these of the flyovers. And uh, it was all about, you know, traffic being able to move easily through the city. And he didn't want traffic to be blocked by these big groups of people. And so he moved uh, collective assemblies to, to a back street. Uh, and initially people protested and they said, no, 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 we don't want to be on the back street. But because the 1990s was also a period when mass media was, was rapidly expanding in the wake of, of the liberalization of the economy, uh, people quickly realized that newspapers and television stations would cover Dharna Chauk as a regular beat, and that they would document the issues that people were raising there. And so very quickly, they came to embrace that space, uh, so much so that other cities like Tirupati also started to demand their own Dharna Chauks. Uh, and, and um, you know, in, in Delhi, we have Jantar Mantar, which has a very similar kind of history, moving away from the parliament uh, toward, you know, not, not too far away, but far enough away that it's not blocking traffic. Uh, and many other cities have their own designated assembly spaces. And so part of what I was interested in doing in this first chapter is really just tracing those changes. You know, we, we use the same term, dharna to describe very, very different things. And, and what are the connections? What is the thread that, that holds those together? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. That was uh, very interesting. And I, I was also chuckling about the Dharna Chauk, uh, uh, you know, affront earlier because it, it brought to mind some of the conversations that were happening in my family about this. Um, <laughs> yeah, but the second chapter of the book, um, in a way, dovetails from the first chapter, but twists the literature and political communication and the politics of emotion and recognition to explore how and why do those in power acknowledge some efforts to communicate while disregarding others. So what does paying attention to how those in power listen or do not listen tell us about the role of emotions and expectations around rationality and civility that structures say state citizen relations in India and South Asia broadly. Sure, yeah. And I think uh, my second and third chapters really work together. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and, and one of the main arguments that together they're trying to, to get across is that we tend to view civility and the existence of, of a civil society as a precondition for democracy. Um, and that you need these, you need civility, you need civil speech, you need civil society in order for a democracy to thrive. And what I'm trying to suggest based on both ethnographic and historical uh, research is that making sure that everybody is able to be heard is actually a precondition for civility to exist. And what I mean by that is that if people know that they're going to be heard, they can speak softly. They don't have to speak loudly. They don't have to speak collectively. They don't have to uh, occupy space to force people to listen to them. But when they're ignored or they're willfully not listened to, that's when they have no choice 
but to find other ways to communicate. And these alternatives sometimes sometimes include raising one's voice or bonding together with others. Sometimes it involves uh, emotions that are considered uncivil, like anger, uh, sometimes even violence. These are all ways of communicating that are often labeled as less civil, too emotional, not rational. Uh, there's a word in Telugu that I really love, garjana, mm-hmm. which literally means roar. But it's also used to describe collective gatherings, collective assemblies. So a garjana or a jana garjana, a people's roar, or a maha jana garjana, a great roar of the people, are all labels that are used in Telugu to describe a mass political gathering or collective assembly. Um, and I think that that these are these are ways of enlisting popular opinion. When you when you host a garjana, you're you're enlisting popular opinion to encourage political leaders, whether they're elected or appointed, to open up discussion and include you in debate or include voices that have otherwise been ignored. Mm-hmm. Uh, these kinds of of garjanas and mass gatherings, dharanas, are also used to hold elected officials to their campaign promises um, or to the very equitable, more equitable implementation of existing legal structures. And I think this is really different than uh, a lot of the theorizing of of mass collective action in India tends to see it as demanding exceptions to the law. Um, And and certainly we can find examples of that even in, in, uh, in the Southern Indian context that I've done a lot of my research. But but I think the majority are actually trying to hold political leaders to, to their campaign promises. And we saw this really vividly in the Telangana movement. Uh, uh, for, for the listeners who, who aren't aware of it, uh, there was a movement, there's been a movement almost since, uh, since the 1950s when the Telangana region of, of southern India, which was under the, the uh, Nizam of Hyderabad and never directly under colonial rule, uh, was joined with the coastal Andhra Telugu-speaking districts on the basis of their shared language to form the state of Andhra Pradesh in 1956. And almost as soon as, as it was it was created, there were people in Telangana who felt that they were, were being discriminated against, in part because of their language, in part because it was a less prosperous region of the state, didn't have the same kind of um, uh, heavy irrigation and rich agricultural land. And a lot of the media, uh, educational institutions, and other things were really dominated by migrants from coastal Andhra. And this movement really began to gain momentum in the the early 2000s. uh, And then from about 2009, political parties, there there was a series of three different political parties. Each was elected on the promise that they would bring into being the bifurcation of Andhra Pradesh and the creation of the new state of Telangana. And in each case, as soon as the party got elected, or at least in two of the three cases, as soon as the party was elected, they backpedaled and they reneged on their promise. And they said, no, 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 we need to do more research. This is going to alienate people from coastal Andhra. Uh, Let's first form a commission and do some research. And then, then let's see. And this really angered people in Telangana who had elected uh, a party to to office with that understanding that Telangana would be formed. Um, so we see the ways that these these really large garjanas or, or collective assemblies often occurred in the wake of broken campaign promises. Um, I, that's, I probably said it said enough, but I, I also, in addition to the Telangana movement, I also draw really heavily from Dalit politics. Um, and uh, one of my other uh, cases in these two chapters is the Ambedkar Students Movement at Hyderabad University. And there was an incident in which, in 2002, in which 10 uh, members of the Ambedkar Students Association were rusticated or suspended from the university uh, in the wake of uh, the effort of, of a lot of the Dalit students at Hyderabad University to object to a change in the the hostile mess procedures that um, kind of moved toward the privatization of the purchasing of the food stuffs that were used in the hostile messes. And the the person who was then in charge of the the hostels 
um, had tried to centralize the purchasing and it had caused the fees to, to increase by over, by almost 60%. And if, if you're a student from a family that can't send you monthly, you know, support, uh, and your fees for the hostel mess go up by, by almost 60%, you're, you're in crisis. And, Many of the students from from lower class backgrounds and lower caste backgrounds who really rely just on their university stipends found it almost impossible to maintain themselves and tried to raise this. They tried to raise it in hostile meetings. They tried to raise it in a general body meeting. They tried to uh, submit letters and petitions to the university administration. Uh, they, They wrote a memorandum and all of their efforts to communicate were ignored. And finally, um, they went to meet with the chief hostel warden who refused to meet with them and sent them away and said, come back tomorrow. And when they returned the next day, he had, uh, I guess, strengthened his <laughs> his faction. And, and uh, it's not clear exactly what happened, but it quickly became violent. But in the wake of this, instead of pointing to all of the efforts that these students had made to be heard, news coverage talked about the Dalit students as angry and violent and asked questions like, why are they angry? <laughs> and and the, the final event was extracted from the whole history of communicative efforts, and only that final event was focused on. And this is something that's really common in Indian history. Uh, even something like Ranajit Guha's uh, elementary aspects of the political tends to abstract peasant uprisings from the longer history of, of efforts to communicate with authorities and only focus on the last moments when it becomes collective, when it becomes sometimes violent. Uh, it, it takes it out of the longer of the longer temporal framework. And so part of what chapter two and three are trying to do is to say, listen, we need to put specific events back into their temporal frameworks and look at what, what what happened before this what happened before a movement turns turns violent or before it turns collective uh, people often make many efforts to communicate with the state before they bond together collectively yeah and i really appreciated the way you brought in uh, that uh, notion of incivility or rage as being the sort of a way also to um, characterize the the voices of some people at these moments when things seem to erupt, right? And the, the very casting of the moments of hailing the state as being um, an eruption of emotions um, is, as of course, has a longer history in silencing voice, but also then reproducing stereotypes around who is angry and who is... Um, yeah, who who is unable to participate in civil discourse that is so key to democratic functioning. And on that note, chapter four actually offers a very new reading of the history and historiography of general strikes in Britain and India, and was as such a very eye-opening read. Drawing on archival material that document a wide range of general strikes in Indian history from 1669, which really blew my mind, to now, uh, you depart from scholarship that attributes the rise of collective assembly in India to European origins. Um, So why has this idea around the origin of strikes persisted as being from Europe? And what does revisiting this historiography mean for theorizations of democracy and colonialism? Sure. Uh, well, yeah, I was also quite surprised as I started to look more carefully uh, at the histories of of state-directed uh, collective assemblies. Uh, lots of uh, examples of, of um, merchants. Uh, the earliest example, the 1669, is a group of Hindu and Jain merchants who abandoned Surat, uh, because of a of a concern with a, a kazi that is appointed by the Mughal ruler, um, and uh, and then later in the 1680s we see textile producers in Madras who are very frustrated with the terms upon which uh, the East India Company is acquiring textiles from them, and they're not happy with the terms, and so they also vacate Madras and move to uh, Saint Thomas Mount. Um, again, as as a as a way of of engaging and saying, listen, you know, 
you authorities, you're, you know, we need to talk about this and, and you're not listening to us. Um, and, and I think one of the things that really struck me is that at a time when in Europe, uh, you know, collective assemblies are very local and they're not addressed toward authorities. They're addressed, they're, they're, they tend to be used to enforce local cultural norms. So there, there are some groups using them against other groups. So for example, in London, uh, as uh, Indian painted textiles, calicos are being brought into uh, England and into Europe, uh, they're very popular. Um uh, and uh, silk weavers in London's Spitalfields neighborhood uh, were very frustrated by the new competition that they were facing from these printed cottons from India. And they began to engage in collective forms of, of protest, but their protests were not a- directed toward the state. They were directed toward consumers. So in 1719, for example, just this is just a couple of years before the Calico, the first Calico Act is passed in England. Uh, and, and in 1719, you have uh, um, historical accounts of a huge mob of some 4,000 Spitalfields weavers uh, parading through the streets and attacking any women, uh, any woman who's wearing Indian calicos or linens and actually soiling those textiles with ink or with aquafortis or other fluids. Um, so they're not addressing the state. They're not, they're not addressing authorities. Um, and this is the same time that in India you have, you know, direct uh, efforts to communicate with authorities. Um, and I was really struck by that difference. Um, the, the kind of targeting of authorities comes much later in England and, and elsewhere in Europe. Uh, and a lot of historians of, of Europe have documented that shift and, and, you know, when collective assembly starts to be kind of modular and it moves from place to place and it ceases to be very local and it becomes kind of translocal. Um, and so I was really struck by the fact that, that we have evidence of, of these kinds of act, act activities in, in the South Asian subcontinent much earlier. And so I, I really, you know, want to think about what that means for the introduction of electoral politics into a context which is already rich with, with practices, many of which were, were made, were criminalized by the East India Company and later by, by the British government. As, you know, as early as the 1790s, we see uh, the East India Company trying to ban, for example, Dharna, which we had talked about earlier. Um, and uh, so there's a kind of attempt to criminalize collective assembly and say, no, 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 you can a- approach, you know, the East India Company as individuals, but we don't want you to approach us as collectives. And they knew it was because collectives were powerful. Yeah. yeah. Um, in a way, in a very interesting mode of engagement, that you bring up is in the next chapter, which is on alarm chain pulling, which is the fifth chapter in the book. And I absolutely loved it. It was very interesting. And in this chapter, you examine how alarm chain pulling went uh, from being a way of political practice and civic engagement in the 19, 1930s and 1940s to over time being regarded as a form of disruption and extra legal violation. I would love for you to first tell uh, our listeners who might be unfamiliar with the concept of chain pulling what that really is, and then share with us what the what tracing the history of this practice tells us about democratic participation and elite and subaltern forms of practicing politics and what is considered legitimate and illegitimate, criminal, and I guess a proper form of uh, political engagement. Sure. This is also one of my favorite chapters. And in fact, it's the very first piece of the book that I ever wrote. Uh, and and it was really inspired by archival encounters uh, in the National Archives, um, in which uh, I discovered that very early on, uh, in the early 1900s, uh, uh, well, first of all, let me back up and, and answer your question for, for listeners who may not be familiar. The alarm chain in uh, in the Indian Railways is each each carriage or each compartment has a, an alarm chain or an emergency chain. It's also sometimes referred to as a communication chain, which if pulled will immediately halt the entire chain train. Um, and, and these are kind of an everyday, you know, uh, presence in railway carriages in India. 
Um, and there's next to them, there's always a sign that says, you know, unauthorized use of the emergency chain is forbidden and you can be fined uh, for using it if it's not a, a valid reason. But there's no real clear definition of what a valid reason is. And so in the 19, very early 1900s, um, uh, people began, Indian, Indian lawyers and, and educated um, journalists began to ask whether the pulling the alarm chain uh, was appropriate in cases of overcrowding of third-class railway carriages. Uh, some of our listeners might know that Gandhi was uh, was very early on an advocate of, or, or you know, was concerned about the overcrowding of third-class railway compartments, and a lot of, of Indian nationalists were also concerned about that. Um, Indian the Indian railways were not introduced as passenger trains. They were introduced to get raw materials out of the interior, particularly cotton and uh, jute and indigo, out of the interior to the coasts for export uh, export to Europe. Um, and so Indians who wanted to travel by railways had to suffer the indignity of, of traveling in these overcrowded carriages. And so very early on, uh, you have very well-educated elites who are starting to ask, is it a valid use to pull the alarm chain in conditions of overcrowding of third-class rail bogies? If, there, if the number of, of capacity that's painted on the outside is exceeded, can we pull the chain? And uh, I found in the archives an example of somebody who'd written a letter to the railway authorities in Shimla and said, you know, is this a legitimate use? And you see in the marginalia and in the discussion of this of this query from a, a, a lawyer um, in, I believe, in Pune, um, that the railway authorities don't want to answer this because if they say yes, they're going to have trains all over India being stopped. But they also can't quite say no. And so they're right back and they say, we think this is a legal matter. We su suggest that you seek legal counsel. But they refuse to answer it. And so a few days later, in another file, I found a second letter from the same individual <laughs> writing back and saying, but surely you as the highest authority on the railways in India, surely you can answer this question. If not you, who can answer this? And again, they kind of sidestep it and they say, you know, we really, you know, we can't comment any further on this. And, and, and then very quickly, you see from various parts, from Lahore, from various parts of the sub subcontinent, people actually trying it and pulling the chain, stopping, stopping the train, and advocating that other people do the same. Now, what's interesting to me about alarm chain pulling is that it starts uh, to be used by educated elites, not by you know, those we might see as the subalterns, or uh, it starts to be used by educated elites to test the system, to see what would happen. And it's first targeted just toward railway issues, so overcrowding, uh, primarily overcrowding. Uh, and then gradually, by the 30s and 40s, you begin to see it taken up by Indian nationalists as a way of, of uh, expressing uh, frustration with the failure of the British to implement true British rule or you know, the proper electoral politics. Um, include Indians in in um, in the political system. Uh, so so it begins to be used as a as a uh, anti-colonial strategy and it becomes so bad during the Quit India movement in 1942 that again in the archival record you see these debates about what are we going to do these they, you know these these nationalists keep stopping our trains and disrupting our our communicate railway communication uh, and so they come up with a what I think is a is a, a really remarkable strategy, and that is, they they first say, well, can we raise the fines and and can we you know further criminalize this practice that has already been defined as criminal? And they realize that it's very difficult to catch the person who pulls a chain. By the time they you get to the carriage where the train's been where the chain has been pulled, people people have fled; they're no longer there, and you can't really tell who to hold responsible. So they, they kind of do away with that. And then they decide, let's redefine this not as criminal, but as political. And that will enable us to disable the alarm chain on particular routes that are susceptible to this. And those tended to be routes that were, you know, going to Delhi, you know, that were going to the central central government. 
Um, and so they, 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 by, by redefining this criminal act as political, they're also enabling themselves to disable the chains in certain, in certain uh, trains. Now, in the wake of independence and the creation of the new nation in 1947, alarm chain pulling comes to be more controversial. Nehru critiques it. Um, there's a, a great deal of elite uh, criticism of continuing to use this practice. It gets used. It gets used in the Andhra movement. It gets used for all sorts of political purposes. But it begins to be seen as much more of a subaltern form of practicing politics. And elite politics begin to be defined almost exclusively in terms of deliberative practices, you know, participating in debate and discussion. And subaltern forms begin to be associated with collective disruptions of transport or of public space. And and so part of what I'm trying to do in this chapter is to show that if you take a longer time frame, Things that we today differentiate as elite, uh, associated with deliberative democracy and subaltern, as associated with disruptions and collective actions that that disrupt public space and disrupt transport, that historically that bifurcation didn't exist, and that many of these practices actually emerge first out of elite groups. Uh, and so, what does that mean if today we're we're sort of approaching those as practices that you can associate with particular groups and are those really so do they, should they really be associated with those groups or should they be or should we recognize that actually they emerge in contexts in which people's voices are not being heard and they're not being acknowledged mm-hmm. yeah that's uh, really really interesting and honestly uh, i think the uh, the the using this alarm chain pulling as a window into thinking about the categories of elite and subaltern politics it was again like one of those um political anthropologies of like mundane artifacts right it was like very very fascinating but in somewhat of a rejoinder the final chapter on rallies processions and yatras invites us to examine what a successful hailing of the state can actually look like um it shows how the state ends up offering support to actions that are technically illegal. For instance, you uh, give us the example of adding extra carriages or even full trains to accommodate ticketless travel to political rallies, thereby redefining practices viewed as criminal and transforming them into political acts, um, something that has an overlap with what we just discussed as well with the alarm chain pulling. Um, And you characterize this process of uh, the successful rallies, processions, and yatras as being say, moments of political arrival. So could you speak a little bit about this concept of political arrival and how do we uh, rethink state-citizen relations when we look at these successful cases of healing the state? Sure, yeah. Uh, again, this came. This concept of political arrival came directly out of an ethnographic encounter that I had with a Dalit uh, professional uh, from Maharashtra. Uh, and I had been telling him about my project. At that time, I was working in the National Archives and in the Railway Museum uh, Archives, um, you know, looking at the kind of history of railway spaces as political spaces. And he got really excited and he said, we used to do that. Like we used to travel ticketless um, to Nagpur twice a year uh, in in kind of commemoration of Ambedkar. Um, and we used to do it collectively and we used to do it because our voices weren't heard. And he said, after doing this for some time, after a while, the Indian railway officials used to add extra bogies or extra carriages and sometimes even full trains to accommodate our ticketless travel to Nagpur. And, and I was really struck by that. And he said, he said, that's when we knew we'd really arrived, when they started adding extra carriages to accommodate our travel to political rallies. Um, and I, I was really struck by, by his phrasing of that, and that, that, that that's when our voices really started to be acknowledged and we were recognized as, a, as having a political voice. Um, and, and, uh, you know, he was talking about the 1970s and this was when the Dalit movement was really starting to, to begin to emerge in Maharashtra as a, as a kind of public force. Um, and, and again, I think it, it goes back to this, this point that if you know your voice can be heard, you can speak softly, you can pick up the phone and call your elected representative, or you can go and have a, have a cup of chai with your elected 
representative. And you can get your, you know, you can say, I'm concerned about this. Can you do something about it? But if you can't do that, if you, if, if, if you don't have access, if that kind of access to your elected officials, then mm-hmm. either you need to ensure that, that you're electing people who can represent you. Um, and, you know, that's, that's one, one way that democracy um, has, has, I think, um, very uniquely unfolded in the Indian context is, has been uh, reserved seats um, for historically marginalized groups or that can ensure kind of proportional representation. Um, uh, but also uh, um, there's other ways of making your voice known and, and making uh, you visible as, as a force. And one of the things, and, and I don't know that I do a particularly good job of this in the book, but one of the things that I'm also interested in tracking is um, this idea that, you know, I think we have this idea that you have collectives that are nameable and recognizable that pre-exist and then they act politically. And I think what, what seems increasingly clear to me is that people come together when individually they have a hard time uh, being heard. And so it's not that you have identities pre-existing and then those identities become political uh, or engage in, in political acts. It's that the process of, of trying to communicate actually brings people into new identities. Um, and, and again, I don't know that the book, uh, you know, completely does that, but that's, that's something that, that I'm, I'm interested actually in thinking more about which comes first, the identity or the, the, the activities that bring people together or bring them into the street. Thank you, Lisa, for, um, taking the time out to, you know, answer all of these questions about the book. But before I let you go, I would love to know more about what you're working on currently and what we might hope to read by you in the near future. Sure. And and thank you, Sneha, for giving me this opportunity to talk with you about the book. I've really enjoyed this. Um, it might not surprise you that uh, I, in some ways I feel like this book isn't finished. And mm-hmm. the new project that I'm working on is also uh, looking at concepts of the political. Um, This Hailing the State really focused on practices and uh, the new project is is focusing on concepts and how concepts travel and move and how they get altered in that movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a project that I began in 2019-2020. I was in India uh, doing research that year until March 18th of 2020 when COVID struck us all and I left Mm -hmm. India very quickly. Um, but what I was focusing on were various types of translation projects. And these were both literal translation projects where, uh, groups of writers each, I've got about eight different collective translation projects, uh, all involve groups of, of writers or singers or performers and all spanned multiple decades. Uh, and what I'm looking at is both literal acts of translation, taking a concept from another context and translating it for a Telugu speaking audience. Uh, but I'm also looking at more figurative types of, of translation, uh, taking a concept and uh, trying to define it through a folk song, for example, or uh, through uh, burakata uh, folk performance traditions that um, might be addressed toward more rural or uh, less literate audiences. Um, and, and one of the things I'm really interested in thinking about is how this isn't just about diffusion from a point of origin outward to the rest of the world, but rather a kind of back and forth of picking up ideas from various places and utilizing them and embedding them in very local projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one of the examples of that, I think we can see in the, the, the fact that a lot of the writings about democracy are not drawn from the liberal thinkers that we tend to associate with the origins of democracy. So they're not coming from, say, John Stuart Mill or... Um, um, you, know, you know, certainly we're seeing translations of people like Thomas Paine and, and others, but even more importantly, they're coming out of connections with other colonized contexts. So, for example, uh, the Irish and, and South Indian connections are very strong. And uh, my some of the writers that I've been working with in the new project are translating uh, writers like Terence McSweeney, 
who famously fasted for and died in Brixton Prison. He was an Irish revolutionary. Um, so the new project, I, I'm, I'm still not completely sure what direction it's going in, but it will be continuing to take up uh, the movement of political concepts across contexts. That's really, really interesting. And I hope to hear some of it actually at the Telugu Studies pre-conference that we have planned for Madison this year. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah, I think it will be such a great uh, group of conversations uh, and long overdue for us to have like a Telugu Studies uh, pre-conference, really. It's very, very exciting. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for taking time out again. I really, really enjoyed the book and um, I feel like it was very inspiring for me to read it at this stage when I'm thinking about or fa- fantasizing about my own first book. So I really, really thank you. And it's, it's such a pleasure to be in conversation with you. And um, I felt like uh, our interview is such a great teaser for the book. And I hope all our listeners pick up a copy and uh, read it right away. Well, thank you so much. And, and we're all very much looking forward to your book as well. <laughs> thank you. All right. Uh, take care and I'll uh, chat with you at Madison, if not before. That sounds great.